Hi, it's Ben. Welcome to the Upgraded Executive Podcast. Our guest today is Tim Samuels, who is an award-winning British documentary filmmaker, BBC and National Geographic broadcaster and author. This episode is called Who Stole My Spear? Being a Man in the 21st Century. We talk about many of the ways men now find themselves living, taking on everything from war, religion and pornography to fatherhood and relationships. And this is also for women who wonder what's on a man's mind. Please subscribe, like and check out the links in the description to get early access to our videos. Tim, welcome to the podcast. If it's okay to give a short introduction to the audience and your journey up until this point. My background is a journalist, documentary maker. I was a correspondent at Newsnight. I did documentaries, current affairs for BBC and that geo television in the States and still do some of that stuff. At the moment, I've been doing a, a wellness podcast called All Hail Kale, which is on the BBC, and I'm building that out into a wider wellness company, essentially allhailkale.com. And I'm housed at the moment in Founders Factory, which is a VC incubator in London. And over the years, I've done a lot of stuff around men and masculinity as well. And did a show called Men's Hour, which ran on the BBC for a number of years. And off the back of that, wrote Who Stole My Spear? How to Be a Man in the 21st Century. And then in the US, a more recent version of that called Future Man, with the very snappily titled name, How to Evolve and Thrive in the Era of Trump, Me Too, and Mansplaining. They're like a longer title in the States. So that's sort of where I am, really. What was the draw and the inspiration behind writing Who Stole My Spear? For me, there's a sense in which men have been very misportrayed by the media. You know, we are presented as this group, this men are men, rather than men can be different types of men who've had it great, who've had this sense of being at the top of the tree for a long time. And I think for some men, that's really true. I think, especially in business and politics, some guys have had a really easy time of things. And a lot of natural advantages. It struck me, you know, in the course of my journalism, that a lot of guys were having a really hard time at the moment. And if you look at the mental health rates amongst men, they're pretty shocking. You know, they're much more, three to four times more likely to take their own lives. Men are damaging their health to the point where in the States, the, you know, year by year, men have been living longer. And then it's sort of like gone the other way now. Self-destructive, drinking more drugs, opioids, not looking after themselves. Incarceration rates, you know, very, very heavily men. Homeless rates, very male-based. And I just thought there was something around masculinity in men which has gone pear-shaped, which people aren't really talking about because it's not our time. You know, this is the time of Me Too and gender rebalancing. This is not an either-or. I think, you know, we can have more equality and root out some of that overdue sexism and raise women's lot at the same time as raising what's going on with men at the same time. So it's not anti-feminist. It's not, it's not a zero sum game. It's just saying a lot of guys at the moment are having a really hard time. That's not being taken seriously. And that has really big consequences. As I said, on the kind of individual level, you have depression rates, you have alcoholism, you have all the sort of self-destruction that goes with men feeling they're on their downers and on a kind of bigger political level 
men who are not feeling like men who are having a hard time become the fuel for radical politics. If you look at the election of Donald Trump, he was swept to power by men. Brexit was majority men. Bolsonaro in Brazil, far right in places like Hungary and so forth. It's a, a political force to be reckoned with, masculinity. But we don't talk about that. We just assume men are having a great time of things. So for me, the onus to write the book was to kind of have a very honest conversation about what's going with men around on the kind of bigger picture, but also like break it down, you know, what's it like dating as a guy these days? What relationships, monogamy, porn, religion. I just think, you know, men have been dismissed for too long as two dimensional and a bit emotionally stunted. In fact, maybe this chat with you guys is a testament to that. Things have changed. We've evolved. We can express what's going on. We're capable of more than just grunting. We're going to take up the whole of the podcast discussing the book. It's a great book. So should we kick off with the male evolutionary heritage and how this is conflicting with our modern lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, Homo erectus and Homo sapiens have been around for about 2 million and about 200,000 years. The way we live our lives, we essentially stopped hunter-gathering and began farming about 10 or 12,000 years ago, which is nothing compared to the kind of amount of time that's gone before us. Not enough time for evolution to really do much of a job. So we are basically walking around in the bodies of hunter-gatherers. We're wired in the same way that remaining hunter-gatherer tribes are now, or cavemen would have lived. The lives we live are incredibly out of kilter with that. You know, if you take something like exercise, for example, we are, I mean, all three of us are sat down now. We're going to be sat down for the next 45 minutes. We're sedentary. That's really bad for us. You know, as you sit down, there are certain toxins which build up in your body. For the podcast I do, All Hail Kale, we did an episode called Is Exercise Insanity? And I tried to speak to a hunter-gatherer on the phone, a member of the Hasta tribe, to get a sense of, does he ever go jogging for fun? Like my best attempts, he had no idea what I was talking about because for him, he just moves every day a lot as part of that. Probably 10 to 20,000 steps a day, physical activity, but not needlessly exerting. Then, you know, these guys aren't running marathons, they're kind of walking quite briskly. So, on a very basic level, we are living lives which are completely out of sync with our body. Applies to exercise, it applies to diet, applies to sunlight, and more controversially, you could say it starts to apply to men and monogamy. And this is where, you know, slightly enter hot water. Because if you look at the size of our ape cousins and the size of their testes, they generally correlate to the monogamy or polygamy or promiscuity of those apes. Because we're evolved not to needlessly have things that we don't need, you know, we don't have larger testicles than we need, for example, it's a waste of sort of blood and tissue. The chimp has giant testicles and is deeply promiscuous and it needs to generate as much sperm as possible to literally flush out the deposits of its rivals who might have been there before them. 
The gibbon, by contrast, has much, much smaller testicles and is a monogamous creature. We sort of fall in between the two, which means on a purely socio-biological level, we're not wired to be monogamous, we're wired to be mildly polygamous, which means alpha male and several females. Now, that isn't a license to then go and, you know, sorry, love, but you know, it's the relative size of my testes compared to other ape species that's led me to have an affair. But it's useful to know that perhaps some men feel it more than others, that you might be fighting your wiring. And, you know, I think I wrote that in the same way that if you don't want to eat loads of sugar, it's useful to know how we're wired and then maybe avoid sweet temptations. We're 98.4% chimp still. We're hunter-gatherers wearing suits. And I think that has an impact. It's not to say we are dictated by this. You know, it's an excuse for violence. It's an excuse for promiscuity. But I think certainly on a, from an exercise point of view, from a mental health point of view, it's just useful to know what we're wired towards. And what would you say made men men for thousands and thousands of years of human history? It's interesting. If you go all the way back to cavemen times, we were actually quite egalitarian. As far as we can tell, it wasn't a sexist society because based on the amount of calories that were being gathered each day, men and women were pretty equal. You know, men would go out hunting and often not get very much and come back with near myth stories. You know, a bit like after a game of Sunday League when you, you were so close to scoring. And the women would have been gathering and as a result, the nuts, the berries, the fruit would have been quite a loss of the intake. So as far as we can tell, they were quite flat gender societies. So for the vast sweep of history, what made a man as a being as a man wasn't sexual dominance it was probably the kind of sense of hunter gathering it would have been out hunting with a fellow band of men in a tight-knit group and that sense of purpose that productivity that sort of adrenaline the chase the sense of survival and then i guess more day-to-day you're part of a kind of wider community with children, with old people there, you know, a sense of identity of being part of something. And as far as we can tell, hunter-gatherer tribes are actually quite flat structures. They're quite egalitarian because if one person gets above their station, that's bad for the tribe as a whole. So, you know, it's kind of like if Denmark was a tribe, you know, that's kind of more what we're looking at where, you know, it's a flatter society. So that sense of being a man, I think, would have been productivity, it would have been adrenaline, it would have been time with other men, it would have been family time, it would have been community time and extended family time. And then, I guess, in the last 10,000 years, what makes a man a man has been, I guess, much more around dominance over women. And then it depends what your history would have been, you know, were you the slave or the slave owner? Were you the peasant or the landlord or the the feudal lord? Were you in excruciating pain or were you lucky not to have toothache? Were you at boarding school or were you down the pit? But I think generally, you know, what one can draw from across that is, you know, you had a sense of purpose. You had a job for life, maybe. 
you had a, a role in the community in the sense of status, you knew who you were. You probably weren't questioning yourself too much. You probably weren't that emotional. You may or may not have been a very good father or husband. You might have been a bit emotionally stunted. You know, for men, a lot of the identity comes from jobs and the jobs that we do. And throughout most of, let's say, recent history, you would have felt fairly secure with that. You know, you might have had jobs for life. You would have felt a sense of purpose maybe from that job. You know, even coal miners have sort of, there's a romanticism to that work. And I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing now with men come from that loss of steady work, the income, the loss of status, and all that goes with that. So these are challenging times. To build on that, what would you say is the current state of masculinity? Again, I think it depends where you are in the world. You know, if you're a man in the developing world, it's probably a very different situation. I've been doing some world service documentaries looking at men around the world and in somewhere like Nigeria it's fairly unchanged. I was in Mexico recently and the Me Too kind of movement hit there but not with much impact. I think there's been a bit of a reckoning there but not a huge amount and there's still terrible levels of violence both against women and you know the general murder rate. So that sense of masculinity apart from perhaps some enclaves in Mexico City is fairly unchanged but you know if you look at parts of america or parts of this country i think you know it really has shifted and men are the positive sides i think much more present emotionally as fathers much more supportive as partners more empathetic perhaps less boorishly alpha male the flip side of that you know, I've been to North Carolina where some of those traditional industries have collapsed. And with that, masculinity has collapsed. Guys who can't get jobs or went from working in coal mines to working in Walmarts, if they're lucky. And with that, a sense of pride has gone and routine and relationships and health. And that's where you see things like opioids kick in. That's where you see guys just drinking too much and smoking too much and eating crap. So I think, you know, there's a fragility to masculinity now, which you see in areas especially where men have lost their sense of economic well-being and status. But it's interesting, you know, you see that in different parts of the world, you know, Starting to see that in India, which is still a very male-dominant society. But men are feeling threatened by women coming into the workplace. Men who've left the countryside and moved to the cities in India perhaps have reacted very badly and you've seen some awful kind of acts of violence against women there. A lot's up in the air at the moment, you know. Had a long time where being a man was fairly straightforward. I think nowadays, you know, it is anything but. You think we're at a tipping point or a crunch point in terms of the most challenging time to be a man? Leaving aside the extremes of being a peasant, being a slave, being vanquished by an army, I think for kind of regular blokes who perhaps might have 
avoided that sort of thing by virtue of where they were born. I think we are. And I think what's going to make that much more of an inflection is automization. As more and more jobs are lost, I think there's going to be a real sense of masculinity adrift. And, you know, there are millions of jobs just rely on driving, for example. And if, as we predict, self-driving cars and trucks are going to become more a feature of our lives, perhaps not as soon as we think, but if that does happen, I think, you know, there's going to be a sort of shrinking pool of employment. And then, you know, it's something that Andrew Yang has been talking about. He was talking about giving everyone that kind of universal basic income. I think on the one hand, that's fascinating. And but on the other hand, I think giving guys money or women just to live off, there's a fundamental sense of being alive that comes from being productive, being part of something. And I think just having like, here's a couple of thousand quid a month to sit around and survive on, I think, I don't know. I don't think everyone's, I don't think we're wired like that. I think we need to be productive. We like to hunt and gather. And I'm thinking a lot about what that's going to mean for men and society in the future. I don't think we're going to just put our feet up and go down quietly. And what do you think is happening from a corporate culture perspective at the moment? I think men that work in big companies are going through an interesting time. I think a lot of them have had it very good for a very long time. And if you look at boardrooms, they're still vastly dominated by white men. And yes, it is undoubtedly good to break that, that kind of grip up. You know, you want more voices, you want different voices. But I think corporate culture has perhaps swung to the point of overcompensation. When I've done talks around, say, men and mental health, people have come up to me afterwards, and white guys who just say they feel quite scared at the moment. They're going to say the wrong thing inadvertently and be called out for that, and that's career and reputation ending. Or that they're not being promoted because they don't tick certain boxes. I think it's a bigger conversation we need to have around how do you remedy the wrongs of before, and perhaps the systemic biases and discrimination, while it's not just laying on more discrimination on top of that. I don't know what the answer to that is. You know, I don't know whether these biases are so entrenched that you do need quotas or positive discrimination, or whether there's a sort of smarter, more nuanced way to do that. You know, I think for some guys, they're feeling the patriarchy's collapsed on their watch and their time to take one on the chin for the greater good or they just feel a bit discriminated against themselves. Especially in America, this terrifying fear of you make the wrong joke. It gets misunderstood. You're out on your elbow. You know, again, it's that sort of nuance of, you know, it's good not to have an intimidating workplace and bullying is an awful thing. And a lot of guys have been jerks over the years and said things that which have made women or gay guys or you know, people of color feel you know, uncomfortable or just other guys. And you know, no one wants that. But you'd also don't want the kind of self-censorship of just like not being able to be human and interact with people or make, you know, a benign joke. So, you know, this, the pendulum has been swinging around a bit and I don't know if it's coming back, but it feels like it's going to settle 
somewhere, but at the moment it's still swinging a bit. Can you talk us through your views on lifelong commitment? On a personal level, I sit here and that's on my to-do list. You know, I crave meeting someone, settling down and having a family. I think it's probably easier to say and do if you leave it a bit later in life. You know, I was talking to a friend at the weekend, I was saying, I think anecdotally looking around the people I know who got married a bit later, probably mid thirties onwards, feel more equipped for that than what they need to over the years. They don't kind of, there's no mystique around what multiple partners means or looks like. They've got that out of the system and they kind of know how hard it is to find someone special. So, and they're just knackered as well by the time they kind of get over 40. So, you know, as I go back to the kind of wiring question and that, you know, I think it can be a challenge. You know, I think lifelong monogamy is something which is not something that many societies across the world and historically have adhered to. And I think it's a challenge for a lot of men and women, not least because we're living longer than before. You know, if you were dying in your 40s, then it's, I guess, less of a challenge. You know, marriages used to be a lot shorter for, because life used to be a lot shorter. We used to have expectations of marriage. I mean, if you go back to, which were realistic, if you strip away adverts, films, wrong films, books, your idea of what a relationship would be would be absolutely grounded in reality. You know, that kind of non-Hollywood notion of romance would have been, well, I've seen a couple in the same village or tribe. They're together and they seem to kind of get on and support each other. There's no kind of violins playing in the background. It's just utterly rooted in pragmatism. So layer on crazy expectations layer on crazy choice where you know previously you would have lived in a small community and you wouldn't have met that many new people now we travel a lot and then you throw in internet dating and it's a kind of app dating and it's just dizzying array of crazy choice and a sense of wanting you know there's always something around the corner throw in the toxic impact of porn and online porn being available you know, the touch of a fingertip. And I think there's a lot of challenges there. You look at divorce rates and it's not surprising. And, you know, I guess on top of that, you've got the day-to-day ball ache that is modern life and technology and expectations and what your hunter-gathering looks like and, you know, how your mental health is and how that impacts a relationship. So, yeah, I think... I don't know, I sort of reached the point where I am very unjudgmental about relationships and you know how people live their life and whatever you need and whatever gets you through it. But I think it's no surprise having a single partner for life can be really challenging for a lot of men and women. You've touched on depression or mental illness a few times. Should we discuss that? And I don't know if I should preface that with expectations to be a success home and work, and if that's a large driving force behind current depression rates and suicide rates within men. 
There's a certain amount of mental health, which is, I guess, regardless of your situation, it might be your wiring, it might be ethic, but the gap between expectation and reality is huge. It's hugely dominating for your mood. So if you're living the life that you think, well, this is what I ought or should, which is quite a loaded term, be living, you, it's, like, it's a lot easier. It's like, yeah, I've got, you know, um, I've ticked my boxes, I've met my potential, I've earned what I need to, I've met who I need to, I've produced, I've, you're probably more likely to feel okay. You know, the thing is, when you lie awake at night, it's, I haven't really lived up to what I need to, or I'm worrying about money, or am I gonna meet someone, or I'm not happy with someone, I'm a bad dad, am I gonna be a dad? You know, it's that, it's where your expectations are. And again, it's a bit like romance. Your expectations, pre-mass media, pre-travel, would have been fairly limited. Day-to-day, fairly modest, fairly achievable. Nowadays, you know, our expectations are off the charts. You know, we're being, through advertising, through films, especially through social media, they are, you know, we're told you can be anything, you can achieve anything. And for most people, they can't. And we have such inflated expectations. Our realities are never going to match that. And even when you speak to, you know, friends who are, for want of a better term, celebrities, if you get to be a celebrity, everything's great. It's really not. So we have this massive gap between expectations on the one hand and the reality. And the realities are really tough. The odds of kind of meeting your expectations are really slender. So it's this kind of double-edged sword of the expectations are raised and the realities harder than perhaps our fathers and the men before us ever would have had to deal with. And I think that breeds a kind of profound dissatisfaction in this kind of sense of is this it for life am i ever gonna have i done enough and this is very toxic and then sometimes those you know and if you throw in work problems which affect your status and your financial earnings and might affect your relationships i think all this can have a really tough bearing on men's mental health and I think, you know, this is why we're having a lot of problems at the moment. You know, a lot of it goes back to work. You know, it's that loss of status. It's the loss of community, the loss of meaning, productivity, financial autonomy. And I think it's challenging. You were talking about the corporate culture earlier. How can men hunt and gather in an open plan office. And I know you talked around this in the book. Yeah, I mean, the way I deal with it is I sit there with noise cancelling headphones on. Even your ability to do basic maths is compromised by being in an open plan office. So for me, it's, if there are times when I do have to do it, how can I block out the noise and try and focus? Sometimes it's, how can I carve out some time to go and do a meditation during the day? Distractions are such a pain, but you know, the mindfulness, this kind of Eastern inspired meets modern psychology movement is all about being present. You know, if we go back to hunter gathering, when you're out hunting, you're absolutely in the present. 
you're tracking an animal, you're listening, you're looking for a rustle in the leaves, you're sat with guys, you're not talking, you're utterly focused on that. It's a thing called being in flow. And, you know, you sometimes find that, you know, even if you're playing a computer game or playing sports or doing certain jobs at work, you're so caught up in it that it's actually quite meditative. The open plan offer is the kind of antithesis of that. It's like pulling you in different directions the whole time. How can you try and keep yourself blocked out from all that distractive nonsense? They're awful places, open plan offices. There's an episode called Extreme Routines and Do They Work for All Hail Kale and the podcast. A guy called John Zaratsky has written a book called Make Time where have his more certain period in the mornings where when he gets up, he doesn't turn on his emails, he doesn't check them, he just focuses on the thing he wants to achieve that day without that distraction because sometimes you open up your emails on your phone and you know you're not going to reply because it's more than your thumbs can cope with. But there's a kind of, I think it was like information residue. It's already started, it's triggered the stress in your brain that I've taken off the red alert button on my emails. So, you know, and I won't check my emails now until after breakfast. Some people keep their phone in a drawer. Even just having your phone in sight lowers your ability to concentrate. So I think it's like, how do we, like, tech is such a distraction and it pulls us out this mindfulness and our sense of flow. It's like how you minimize that and create environments which allow you to focus. Why do you think that men make up around 95% of CEOs and yet 95% of the prison population. Yeah. We are very good at over and underachieving. I mean, I think that 95% of CEO is obviously a legacy of the systems and the biases which have favored men and the glass ceiling and the discrimination that's gone with that. But if you look at men are very liable to over or underachieve. So you have a lot more male Nobel laureates, systemic reasons as well. You know, maybe it's that kind of hunter gathering thing of like that absolute sheer zooming in and we're quite good at blocking other things out. And maybe we have historically have had supportive wives who've stayed at home and these men have gone out and done that sort of thing. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a, an overdue realignment at board level and things like Nobel Prizes. But I think when men who are probably more competitive than women, and there's certain wiring to suggest that, I think when they fail, they sort of bring the house down as well. They take it very personally. So when you're failing, you are more likely to, as I said, turn to addiction. And I think it is that sense of, you know, we are we're competitive, we've been brought up that way. And when you're losing at the at life and in that game, you you self-destruct inwards or outwardly. And you end up in jail, you end up homeless, you end up addicted, you end up depressed. What's your view on fatherhood in today's times? And also is there a mindset around not wanting boys? I think fatherhood's a really interesting positive at the moment. I think we've had 
a long time, especially in this country, of emotionally distant fathers. Not spending time with their kids, not emotionally engaging, not doing stuff around the house. One of the great positives of recent years has been the change in fatherhood of dads rolling up their sleeves, being emotional with their kids, spending time with them, getting to know them, investing emotionally in them, looking after them. I think that's such a healthy thing, you know, I think for everyone's mental health and sense of who they are, it's great that shift has happened. I think that's a massive societal shift. I see amongst friends, you know, there's a real willingness to get involved and bond with their kids in ways that perhaps our fathers or certainly their fathers before that never would have done. You know, my dad never changed a nappy in his life. You know, other people's dads would occasionally gaze over from the sports pages and, you know, give you two minutes of small talk. It just, so I think it's great. That's a great, great thing. What's challenging is, of course, I think it's hard to be that kind of ideal dad when you're stressed about work or you're killing yourself with long hours or getting emails when you're at home. So I think all that that plays against it. Whether we really have picked up that many household chores is debatable. I think fatherhood's just gone through this amazing generational shift and that's great. There are still a million kids in this country with no meaningful relationship with their dads. X million in America, you know, boys growing up without dads or a male role model, as we know, really, really tough and has consequences for them and for society. On the other hand, Boys, just like men, are having a hard time of things. They're way more likely to drop out of school or be diagnosed with ADD. They're less likely to get to university. They're less likely to have basic proficiency in things like math and English at school. In some of these kind of clinics where you can specify what sex child that you want, 80% want girls, 20% want boys. It's quite telling. And I think this is kind of the boy crisis sort of mirrors the man crisis in some ways. If you look at the way boys are educated at school, at primary school especially, it's a very, for want of a better term, feminized or traditionally feminized environment where you get rewarded for sitting on your hands and behaving politely. Boys are not wired that way. They, even in the womb, their brain washed in androgens, male sex hormones, which means they need to run around more. They're more boisterous. And... They need to learn actively and they need to run around and they actually get penalized. Boisterous boys underperform considering how they, based on their intelligence, should perform. I just think you know, the kind of primary school system needs to adapt to boys, to let boys be boys and learn in a way which suits them. And you know, maybe that runs through to secondary school as well, where it's kind of perhaps more skill-based, lads aren't academic. And, you know, just as we're sedentary and that's bad for us and we're not releasing our adrenaline and testosterone and, you know, we're not out there hunter-gathering, boys aren't out there running around. You know, they're not doing sports as much as they should. Playing fields are being sold off. It applies to girls as well. So I just think they need a different form of upbringing which suits them or else that's going to create problems which run through to adulthood and 
what are some of the things that we can do on a daily basis to try and keep ourselves healthy, not only from a physical point of view, but very much from a mental point of view? So in Who Stole My Spear, at the end, I kind of reached the point of we count our calories every day. We, you count your steps. Is there a kind of way in which you should almost be counting your spears, which is you should look at masculinity as this vital force in you that needs to be nurtured. And that goes back to how we're wired and how we've lived. So how we're wired, I guess, gets into things like exercise and covering, you know, your 10,000 steps a day, but also a pace where you should be walking at a pace where you feel like you can take your coat off. You are probably pushing your body to its limits twice a week. You're not sitting on your ass all day. But we're, you know, beyond that kind of physical sense, we're wired to be part of something bigger. So what, you know, how can we meet our kind of community and tribal needs? And that might be spending time with, you know, your extended family, spending time with your band, your group of male friends. And, you know, there's some research suggesting that, you know, going out regularly with your male friends improves your immune system and your mental health. But, you know, these days, it's so hard for guys to, I don't know, especially once they get married, to kind of meet up and, and see each other. And I think it's a healthy release to spend time with your male friends when you can, you know, vice versa for, for women. I think there's something quite cathartic about that. How can you have a wider sense of belonging and meaning? And, you know, it's that sense of whether you get that in a religious service, whether you get it at a football match, how can you be part of a crowd or something where, you feel part of something bigger or productivity. We get so much joy from being productive and making things. How can you have a sense of productivity, which probably doesn't come from your work these days? You know, not that long ago, we were doing things with our hands or feeling physically productive, which is why skilled workers are more than twice as likely to say that they're extremely happy as those of us that are stuck in offices each day. So what's the productive thing that you can be doing at the weekends, whether you're making something or building something? or perhaps have a martial art where you're channeling a skill. So not everything comes down to work. Not all your eggs are in that work basket. You get your community at work. You're not going to get your productivity at work. How can you get that outside that? If you strip us back to the basics of, we might have these age-old urges and ways of living. How can we channel them in a very modern, positive way? You know, this isn't about going back to the 70s and, I'm going to become sexist and I'll see you later. I'm going to the pub for the weekend. It's okay. I might have these urges, but the really sort of smart modern ways to express them, which benefits everyone around you and respects the kind of bodies that we're in and the ways in which we've always lived, you know, as sort of, you know, how can you be a modern caveman really? Tim, how is it best for people to reach out to you? I'm crap at social media because that distraction but i am on twitter i guess the more interesting stuff i'm doing at the moment is the all hail kale podcast which has quite a lot of these themes woven into it which is on bbc sounds or itunes and if you go to all hail kale as in all hail kale.com i'm producing hopefully a weekly newsletter that's going to go out now with some stuff around wellness and some of these thoughts which are in there you can sign up to that 
what would you say your three tips are for our audience, so executives, for upgrading their personal and professional performance? I would say that, you know, even if you're an executive, you need to be mindful of the fact that you are just 98.4% chimp in a nice suit if you're an executive or casual if it's a Friday, if that's still a thing. And how do you respect this body that you're in and the evolution that's got you there and what your urges might be? So I would say count your executive spears. So think across the course of a week, how am I giving my body what it needs? Two, how am I giving my mind what it needs and less of what it doesn't need, less of distractions, the tech, being able to be absolutely in that flow, that mindful state of flow, you know, you're the hunter gatherer, you're zoomed in, you're focused, you're laser like focus, you know, allow your mental health to flourish by keeping your expectations grounded and everything you can do for that. And, you know, talk, talk a lot rather than bottle. And three, how can I respect my role as part of a tribe? You know, if you're an executive, you're someone that can influence people's lives and make a difference. So how can I play a constructive role in my tribe? How can I nurture people? How can I look after people? How can I bring the best out of them? And how can I have an identity that I'm proud of as part of that tribe? So I think looking after the physical, looking after the mental, looking after the tribal wouldn't be a bad way to spend your week. Very good. Thank you, Tim. Thanks. Please subscribe, like, and check out the links in the description to get early access to our videos.